right, Ross, we got you here. Good to see you, my friend. <laughs> good to see you, too. <laughs> the people at home can't see us, but we can see each other. We're... All right, good to hear you. Yeah, good to hear you, too. <laughs> so I, I saw on, um, on Twitter you've got a new bulldog. Yes, oh, my gosh, the cutest little thing. She's a white female English bulldog named Agnes because my wife wanted a very <laughs> British-sounding name. And this is the thing, though. We have a four-year-old French bulldog, and I'm just hoping that that historical animosity, you know, kind of settles down and and that our French bulldog isn't still mad about Waterloo, you know, and, Napo- and the British beating Napoleon and all that, and I hope they get along. What's the difference in terms of looks between a French bulldog and an English bulldog? French bulldog, they don't look alike at all. A French bulldog, have you seen a Boston Terrier? Yeah. Um, big, you know, pointy ears sticking straight up. And, you know, that that's a French bulldog looks like a shorter, slightly stocky version of that. And yeah. the English bulldog is the one that often is like really fat with the tongue hanging out, looking like Winston Churchill. <laughs> yeah. I've, <laughs> I've got a couple dogs. Um, they're they're Havanese Cavalier mix. Oh. And and one looks totally Havanese and one looks totally Cavalier. But. But they are siblings, and you you just never guess it. Yeah, my kids but. don't look anything alike either. We used to have Cavaliers. They are so lovable and so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, we like to think our Cavaliers smart. But. Yes, right. We all think our kids are smart. <laughs> <laughs> so how did how did we meet? I was trying to think through this. I I thought we got connected by Jared Polis. Is that That's, right? That is right. Go, now governor of Colorado. Yes. And were you doing radio at the time? I was doing radio at the time, and Jared was in Congress. He got to know you. And you know, Jared is a, a fairly liberal Democrat. He's not the most leftist guy, but he's definitely left of center. But he and I are friends, and, and he said, oh, I met this guy, real libertarian. You guys would get along great. You should talk to him. And uh, and we talked, and I ended up actually contributing to your congressional campaign. Was the even though we live a thousand miles apart or fifteen hundred miles apart, and it was actually the only congressional campaign I contributed to in that cycle. So um, yeah, I'm grateful. That means to a lot, Jared. Yeah, uh, and I and I consider you a, a friend, not just a dude I talk to once in a while. Yeah, no, I I really had a great time. I saw you over the summer, and you invited me to your house, and it was fun. It was nice. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you have a beautiful house, and uh, you, you live in a beautiful, beautiful area. Yeah, well, thank you. So, what did you do before radio? Before radio, I was waving my hands and yelling on the trading floor in Chicago uh, most of the most of the time. I'll, I'll go back a little just because I think it's a slightly interesting story. Both both my parents are doctors, and uh, we're Jewish, and. My So my parents' parents were kind of Depression-era Jews. And so especially on my dad's side, they were at best lower middle class, economically probably a little below that. You know, my, my dad's dad worked three jobs just to make ends meet and live in a not very fancy apartment in Brooklyn. And for them, it was really important that their kids be doctors because in their minds it was recession-proof. And I... I 
didn't really know what else to do. And, you know, both my parents are doctors and my aunt and my, uh, everyone's a doctor. And I'm, so I'm on that pre-med path. But I always have this idea in my head that to be a doctor, you have to have a certain desire to help people that I do not have. And so yeah, least, you don't care. You don't care about helping people, you, not in a direct you, kind of way. Yeah. Like, right. I, I, I don't want my day job to be defined by helping people. I want my day job to be something I really love, and then I will either donate my time or more likely donate money to organizations that are run by people and, and, and filled with people who get that daily satisfaction from helping. So yeah. I do give a lot to charity, but I just didn't want to do that every day myself. And, and, and then also, you know, I'm, at the time I was thinking about this stuff was when HMOs were getting really big and insurance companies were starting to take over the medical industry and doctors. And I, I just felt like I would be a bad employee. I didn't want to work for an insurance company. So in the middle of college, just coincidentally, I went to Chicago. I had an uncle there, a step uncle, and he was a trader on the trading floor. And I saw this trading floor and all these guys, it was almost all guys. There were a few women there waving their hands and yelling and making money if they were any good. And as soon as I saw it, I knew it was what I wanted to do. So I was studying political science and economics at Columbia University. I started taking classes real fast. I graduated a semester early, unlike the six-year plan so many kids are on these days. And I moved to Chicago and worked for my uncle for a few months and then started trading. And that's what I did for a long time. And You were presumably a very good student, right? You know, I mean, yeah. you went to Columbia and, and uh, good grades all the time. I, uh, I had bad grades my first semester because I wasn't quite prepared for how much more difficult college was than high school. And then once I figured it out, I got some form of A in every class after that, except from former national security advisors of Big New Brzezinski, and I got a B plus in that class, and I was pissed. <laughs> <laughs> so so then you're in Chicago. You did that for how many years? Gosh, I started in June of 1987, just before the huge stock market crash. That was a whole insane thing. In, the, in 1995, uh, shortly after Bill Clinton raised, tax, raised the income tax rate, I just said, I, I don't want to pay taxes to this guy, to this administration. So I found a company that was setting up a trading company in a trading operation in Europe. And I moved to Amsterdam and I was in Amsterdam for a couple of years. And then Clinton cut capital gains taxes, which is a big part of your income when you're doing what I was doing. And I came back. So I did that for a while. And then in 2001, I, I went on vacation to Australia and I'm not sure how long a version of this story you want, but I, I'm, I met we got a girl. time here so you can tell the long, this is a long form conversation. Long so. form. Okay. I, so, saw <laughs> the, I saw these ceramics that I really loved and the dude I was traveling with wasn't feeling great, a little jet lagged or whatever. He went back to the hotel and I got in a taxi and went out to the art studio where these ceramics were made because I wanted to meet the artist you know, and, I, and this is out in a in a really uh, industrial kind of suburb of of Sydney. And I knock on the door, and and the door opens, and this uh, girl woman opens the door. She's wearing overalls, covered in clay dust, 
and 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 she was the artist and it was her studio and she opened the door and I'm, and the first thought in my mind didn't come out of my mouth but the first thought in my mind is she's hot <laughs> so um i invited her out to dinner with me and my friend a couple nights later we did that and then when i went back to chicago the girl i had been dating in chicago or was dating i knew had always been planning to move away from chicago she moved away I got back in touch with Kristen. I said, remember me? And I said, I'm thinking of coming back to Australia. I'm kind of on the fence about it, but I'll come back if you'll have dinner with me. And she said, I'm kind of busy. Maybe we can go to Starbucks. Right. And so this Chicago. So you said you're going to go to Australia. And she said, maybe I'll go to Starbucks with you. Yeah. If I come to Australia from Chicago. Right? Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's quite the trip to go to Starbucks. But. Yeah. And so I said to her, I don't like coffee. So I'm not coming to go to Starbucks. How about if I take you to a tropical island for a week instead? And so she thought about that for a while and got back to me and said, okay. And so I'm, I, I flew to Sydney. She met me at my hotel. We flew up north to a town called Cairns, C-A-I-R-N-S, Cairns. We did a week inland, and then we did a week on a little kind of private island thing. And all I was really looking to do was fool around with a hot girl with a great accent. But by the end of that, by the end of that trip, I think we both knew we wanted to get married. Hey, what does she think about your accent, by the way? Well, I've often wondered this. Yeah. I actually, I was on a podcast with an Australian. Uh, Josh Zepps, and it was a, a great conversation. Um, although his podcast is called Uncomfortable, Uncomfortable Conversations, um, but it was comfortable and and fun. Mm-hmm. And I I forgot to ask him, or I mean, he was leading the conversation, so I, I didn't really have the opportunity in the, the way I would on here. Whether Australians think American accents are really strange, because I think for a lot of Americans, when we hear Australian accents. Uh, we think that maybe they sound a little bit more like British accents than like American accents, but I'm not sure what it's like if you're an Australian and what what your wife might think about an American accent. First of all, I think you, I think it's much closer to British than to Australian, especially my wife. She doesn't have that super heavy nasal kind of accent. But the thing is that I think the the difference in us looking at them and them looking at us is they have so much more exposure to American media, the, yeah. you know, television and movies, than we have to Australian media. So they're so used to it. And Kristen had actually been on vacation in the U.S. before, and she had actually dated an American before. So to her, it was no big deal. And one upside for me is that Australian dudes have something of a reputation for not treating women as well as women would like to be treated. And so I think there was a little upside for me there too, even though she wasn't all that excited about dating an American. I I told her we will never be apart for more than a month. If you, you know, I said, I really want to make this work. We'll never be apart for more than a month. And we did that. And eventually I just quit working and, and moved to Australia. So you lived in Australia. I I guess uh, I didn't know that. You lived there for how long? Lived there about a year and a half. And then I asked her dad for permission to marry her. And he said, okay. So I asked her. And 
we we had an amazing honeymoon. It was probably close to six months and around a lot of the world. And then we moved to Colorado just because it seemed like a cool place to go. I had never been here before. I'd never lived here before, but here we are. Yeah. And then when did you start radio? Did you come back and do radio at that time? So floor trading where you're standing in a pit is basically your brain against the brain of the guy standing next to you. And I usually win that, right? A combination of, you know, knowing what I wanted to do and being pretty fast in the trading pit. I would usually, I mean, there were better traders than I am, right? Let's put it, I'll use a sports analogy, right? So in terms of trading, I was good enough to be uh, an NBA equivalent trader, but not Michael Jordan. Right. Yeah. Right. So there were some traders better than I am, but I was I, I was all right. But once technology started taking over and everything went onto a screen, now instead of my brain against the brain of the guy I'm standing next to, now it's the computer I've got under my desk right here versus J.P. Morgan supercomputer that they spent ten million dollars on last week and co-located at the exchange to get the extra fraction of a microsecond of connectivity. And I can't compete in that world anymore. So I, I won't put numbers on it, but I went from what was, uh, I went from X dollars of income being a bad year in the pit to half of X being a good year on the screen. And the screen is no fun. So I was kind of desperate to find something else to do. And... I, I got into radio because I started blogging a little bit before everyone and his mother started blogging, right? And that got mm-hmm. me, uh, and it was about state politics mostly, and so radio hosts invited me on as a guest, and that led me to think this radio thing sounds cool, and then I tr- I got the chance to fill in for a friend of mine one time, and the way they say you can be hooked on heroin if you use it once, that's how radio was for me. The first time, I was like, this this is what I want to do. I got to get out of trading and I got to do this. But the thing is that there, there's a fair number of radio jobs out there, but there's not a fair number of radio jobs in big enough markets on big enough stations that you can do that and have it as your only job. A lot of people who work on many of these small stations, you know, they're lawyers and there are other things and they're doing, you know, and they come do radio for one or two or three hours a day, but they've got these other jobs. As a financial markets trader, can't leave for three hours a, a day in the middle of the day when the market's open. You'll be out of business before you can blink. So I had to just do weekends and occasional fill-in and keep trading, even though I hated trading by that time, until an opportunity came along at a big enough station that I could do that and not have to trade anymore. And I guess through some combination of good luck and hard work and a small amount of talent, um, I, you know, and, and a lot of luck, really, it, it kind of fell into place. And now on KOA, you know, I, I'm on the most important talk station, not just in Colorado, but for any state around Colorado, even. Yeah. You're reaching how many people every day? Oh, I don't know how many thousands. It's a big number. It's a 50,000 yeah. watt AM station that go, the, the, I mean, at night, I bet you could hear KOA in Grand Rapids. When huh. when you do the show at night, like I've done some filling at night. I've gotten calls from Montana, uh, Texas. A friend of mine got a call from Quebec. Wow. Um, 
because of the way the AM signal works at, at night. Anyway, I feel very fortunate, very fortunate. And you're doing that from uh, 9 a.m. to noon for people who, who want to catch it about yep. in time. That's right, 8.50 a.m. and 94.1 FM. The AM signal goes a lot further than the FM signal. So when when we first met, were you doing it part-time still? You were filling in, or were you full-time? <clears throat> what year did we first meet? I that I don't know, but I got into Congress uh, in the 2010 election, so I started in 2011 in Congress. I was probably still doing part-time radio and weekends at that point. Yeah, I don't because I started full time in 2016. I think yeah, I, so, I think I've known you longer than that. Yeah, I think so too. So relatively recently, and um, and how did you how did you work your way up? Like, what what did you what was the trick or any tips you have in terms of what you learned? I mean, when you started, you probably found it challenging, or did you find it easy from the get go? I found it easy from the get-go. I, I think the first time I did it, the producer who was running that show said, I can't believe you've never done this before. You're a natural at it. But I think that how I got where I got, I think there there's one main key lesson that I think applies in lots of places outside of radio. And, and that is, so I, I, I let managers of radio stations know, I'm here, I would love to do fill-in. And... If I was in town, if I was in Colorado and they asked, I said yes, 100% of the time. Even if I knew I've got this very risky position on in the options market, and if I go do this show, it could cost me thousands of dollars, and it often did. But I said yes every single time, and I just became known as, as reliable, and I think that's super important. Yeah. I mean, success is always partly due to luck being in the right place at the right time. But would you say it's more important the fact that you are willing to work hard or is it more important that you're smart and naturally talented? It's probably both, right? Like I don't think that either one alone would have gotten me very far. Yeah. Especially on big stations. I mean, if you're going to be on the flagship talk station in your state, uh, it doesn't matter how hard you work if you suck. Yeah. I tend to think that hard work overcomes a lot of other deficiencies. But you're right. You need to get to the top. You need a certain level of talent. But I run into this all the time with people uh, sort of in the business I'm in, which is politics in the past decade or more, that there are people who come in and think they're going to get by, especially young people, you see them coming in, and they think they're going to get by just by being uh, smart or intelligent, and it requires real grit. I mean, you really have to want it, and sometimes the person who works really hard can just outmuscle the person who's really smart. Yeah, and you, and you also have to give the decision maker a reason to pick you and a, and a reason to give you a chance. Uh, oh, one other thing I want to say. I, I, I think a little bit of my prior answer might sound egotistical or something. So when I say it came easily to me, I mean that on a, on a relative basis in the sense that the first time I ever did radio, I probably did a better job than most people the first time they ever do radio. That doesn't mean I was very good. Right. 
it, I, I've been working really hard at this for 10 or 11 years now and just putting in the reps, including a couple years of doing a show on, on Sunday evenings on a small station where I had to drive an hour each way and I didn't get paid anything. And I just did it to get the reps so I could get practice and, and get better. And, you know, I'm, I'm on KOA now because I am better, right? So mm-hmm. when I started, when I started, like I said, I was very good for a guy who had never done it before. I was not nearly good enough to be on any of our iHeart stations here in, in Colorado when I first started. And it was a lot of really hard work and practice and asking people who've done it for a long time, what do I need to do better? And some of it's just very small stuff. Hit your brakes on time or, you know, tease well. Like when you talk about, when you say just before you're going to have a news break or an advertising break, you talk about what you're going to have after that. So people stick around and, and keep listening to the show, keep listening through the ads. That's an art form. I was no good at that the first day. I didn't even know it was a thing. But yeah. these are the things, that, the small things that you learn just like you would have learned in Congress, the small things you don't know unless you're doing it. Yeah, of course. critical to success. Right, and enjoying your work makes a big difference. I mean, you're going to be better if you really like what you're doing. That's my yeah. impression. Yeah, when I started in Congress, I also enjoyed the legislative work a lot, and I think that helped. But there's no doubt after being in Congress for 10 years, I was a much better congressman than I was when I started. And, um, and it All is right, about, so let me, let me yeah. turn this up. What made you think the first time that you wanted to run for Congress? What made me think I, uh, that what I wanted was your to do first, it? Yeah. What made you decide you wanted to do it the first time or, and how old were you the first time you thought maybe I'll run for Congress? Well, I was in the state house before I was in Congress and what made me think that I could and should run for Congress is that people at home were really responsive to what I was doing in the state house. I was explaining all of my votes online. Uh, I was very communicative. I was open with my constituents. I was also very independent minded. And despite all of the criticisms from sort of the establishment crowd, I knew that I had come upon a successful formula and that's how I got into it. I, I said, people really like me here in this role. And you're going to have to strike while the iron's hot. And I think that a lot of times people in life make the mistake of not moving at the moment they should. And I saw at that moment that I needed to move. I, I saw an opening to be a member of Congress where I could make a bigger impact, I felt, than at the state level. And so I moved. Um, but it was it was really just seeing the moment and realizing that I had something that other people didn't have at the time. Being a very young representative, I was only in my late 20s. And that was unusual at the time. I mean, today I think we, we're seeing more and more young people run for office. But at the time, even at the state legislative level, it was unusual to have someone in their 20s and uh, have someone run for Congress in their 20s was highly unusual. So, all right, let me let me go back further then. So when was the first time that you decided you wanted to run for public office? 
That's hard to say. When I was a little kid, I think maybe I had some aspirations because there are drawings that I did as a child. I don't know how old I was where I draw myself as president of the United States. Hmm. And I came from an immigrant family. So I had really felt that American dream through my parents and their experience. My dad came here as a refugee. And I think from a young age, I really wanted to give back to this country, thinking to myself, what a great country this is that gave my parents this kind of opportunity to come here and make a new life for themselves. So I had that spirit from when I was a kid. As I got older, I don't really think I was into it as much, even though uh, in high school, I think I did win um, most likely to become president of the United States or something <laughs> like that. You know, we had, I think I also won most likely to take over the world, um, but for, for my graduating class, but I wasn't really thinking that I would necessarily get into politics at that time. I guess what triggered it was when I was a lawyer and I was doing corporate work, writing contracts, um, you know, drafting uh, documents for companies. And I was thinking to myself, you know, this is important work for these particular uh, companies that I'm, you know, helping out in with, with legal work, but I want to do something bigger. And I was, reading uh, Capital Confidential from the Mackinac Center, which is a libertarian-leaning think tank in Michigan. And I noticed that Republicans and Democrats were basically voting together on all of the worst proposals. And these things were passing unanimously sometimes. Things like corporate welfare, uh, other sorts of highly damaging Primarily economic, because uh, Capital Confidential focused a lot on economic issues, but highly damaging things. And I was like, where's the opposition? Where are the people who care about free markets? Where are the people who care about what made America such a wonderful place? And and I guess that's what got me into it at the time. It was just frustration over politics. Uh, I, was, I was frustrated with the politicians in both parties, both the Republican and the Democratic Party. And I ran as a Republican because at the time my view was you got to run in one of these two parties. I no longer hold that view for a number of reasons that I've talked about. But but that's that's basically how I got into it. So you just asked a not actually rhetorical question, right? Where are they? So I have thought I had thought. And by the way, I in my past, I've been a registered libertarian and I've been a registered Republican. I've never been a Democrat. Which was, I, which was first? It was first Republican, then Libertarian when I learned about them, and then Republican when I moved to Colorado, the Libertarian. Uh, the, the Libertarian Party started getting a little bit too much like hardcore objectivists for me. Like, and I, and by, and I, my son's middle name is Rand, and I, I, I'm into Ayn Rand, but you get into some of these conversations... And it's all about who's purest, not who can get anything done, right? It's, it's like, 
if you, who's like the most ineffective congressman you can think of? Ron Paul, probably. Never got anything done. He made a lot of noise, but he never got anything done. And um, well, to I, be fair, to be fair, it depends on how you define ineffective, too. Yes, because, that's true. Because having served in Congress, none of these people are really getting anything, anything. done that's that's very good for the American people. And and yeah. when they do get something done, it doesn't really mean that it's actually that useful. But for me, going into media, I became unaffiliated, and that was just liberating, right? Because now. In the in radio, or if I'm writing columns for American Spectator, I don't have to cheer for a side, and that's an that's an awesome thing. But what I want to know from you is on the economic issues. Theoretically, your view and mine, which are very very similar, should line up more or less with a lot of Republicans in Congress on the economic issues. They should line up. They yeah, should line up. So. They don't. They okay, and they they don't, and they don't vote that way. Do do they not vote that way because they were never that way? The ones who run for office were never that way, and were never going to vote that way. Or they did have the right mindset for a while, and they got captured by the system. Well, there's a couple things going on now, because at one point I would say most of them coming in at least espoused views that were at their core free market, limited government, reducing spending, um, what, what you'd call fiscal conservatism. And they just didn't live up to it. Once they got there, they were told, vote for this thing, vote for that thing. It'll help you with your election. It'll help the party. We have to make sure we keep these people happy or those people happy. So, I think they got captured, but increasingly I think the Republican Party actually is not the party of uh, classical economics or you know, free market economics. It's increasingly the, the party of nationalism, populism, um, protectionism, and I don't think they really on the whole believe in free trade anymore. They don't really believe strongly in free markets. The people who are who are steering the ship right now in the party. So, I, I think today I'd say something very different compared to say maybe ten years ago when I think they were telling you one thing and doing another. I think today they are basically telling you, no, we don't believe in free markets. We don't believe in uh, in real economics. Yeah, I, be frank. I, I agree with that. And, you know, it's the Trump influence on the party, of course, and right wing populism and all. I I wonder how durable the Trump effect is. You know, what I what I hope is that in the next election, Republicans take back the House and the Senate, but the Trumpiest Republicans running for whatever offices around the country especially in swing districts or purple states, I hope they lose. I, I, you know, as long as Republicans still get back the majority, and this is just my dream, it's not necessarily a prediction, right? But that the Trumpiest candidates lose and Republicans start re- remembering that um, it, winning matters. And, and also, no matter what you think of Trump, there's only one Trump, right? And, and that's probably good, but only Trump can really do and get away with the stuff that Trump did and got away with, part, partly because of his wealth and his brashness and his 
and the fact that everyone knows him for all these years on television and all that. And I think all these mini Trumps are, uh, I don't know, it's hard to see them succeeding outside of districts like Marjorie Taylor Greene's. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think that the new Trumps don't really work. There's one Trump. It works for him. If you try to mimic it, I don't think it works at all. And you've, you've got Lauren Boebert, right? Not mm-hmm. far from you. Yeah. What do you think about what what she's been up to? And I don't know how how close you follow it. And I don't I don't closely follow her work either. But right. Okay. But so a couple of things. She so, seems to be one of the ones who's viewed as more controversial. She's definitely more controversial. She wants to be more controversial. Uh, in by way of full disclosure, I, I don't live in her district. But in the in the last cycle, hers was the only congressional campaign I contributed money to. Yeah. Even though she's way to my right. But I was just, was, and well, I, I guess I won't say am anymore because she's there and I don't like Marjorie Taylor Greene. But I, the reason I supported Lauren is I was so sick of all of the young, dynamic, aggressive females being on the left. And I, and I wanted... I wanted to see some kind of version of, of of the squad on the right, even if they were to my right, just to show people that, you know, a, a 30-year-old woman can be, uh, can be a conservative. And Lauren does things that frustrate me. She says things that frustrate me. I tell her that. Uh, but I, I like her energy, and I, I think that she is – uh, much smarter than Marjorie Taylor Greene. And a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine who was involved with uh, running Lauren's campaign said, and who's run lots of campaigns, said that she never met a candidate who was more coachable and learned faster than Lauren Boebert. Yeah, and so they sort of have a squad, right? I don't know how much they work together like the other ones. I'm trying to think who else there would be. Besides Lauren and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who just, I play Jewish space laser kind of stuff on my show all the time, just to make fun of her. Um, who else are you thinking of? Um, I don't know all the new players, but I imagine she's in with some of the younger people. Is she, are they hanging out with Matt Gates, for example? I mean, Pro- you'd call, would you call him part of the, part of their squad? Well, I'm thinking when I say squad, I mean specifically female. Yeah. Right? I mean specifically female, and they probably are hanging out with him. And I don't like him. And I, I you know, he's not a, he's not quite as much of an embarrassment as Paul Gosar, but he's getting there. Yeah, I I don't know what's going on with Paul because I've known him for a long time. Yeah, and it seems like I don't think the social media stuff is coming from him. I think he has staff who are doing doing that, but um, I don't know. It seems like he's really taking a new approach compared to when I knew him. Actually, when Paul Gosar entered Congress, he was viewed as sort of a moderate because he was in one of those tougher districts that then got redistricted and changed after his first term. So – he initially entered as sort of a moderate Republican hmm. and, and then changed his tune after that. But, you know, it's, um, it's sort of a mess over there. I mean, 
you talked about the space laser things. Have, have you experienced more anti-Semitism, like personally, no. with the kind of stuff that's going on? No, no, no. Uh, I I haven't. And you know, there's there's so much talk of, uh, from the political left about how the far right poses the biggest threat and all this. And, you know, I realize that there can't, I mean, you think back to like Timothy McVeigh and that far right. I mean, those people do exist, but I, I still feel like that on a, on a day-to-day basis, we face much bigger threats. And I don't just mean on a policy basis, but like on a violence in the streets basis from the, from the left than from the right. I'm much more afraid of Antifa. I don't mean me personally. I mean, for the country, I'm much more afraid of Antifa than I am of the Proud Boys, and I and I can't stand the Proud Boys. They're they're anti-Semitic, racist, all, all those groups. I have nothing good to say about them. I'm just saying, on a moment-to-moment basis, I fear Antifa and those people more. Do you think some of this has to do with bias? Some of what exactly? Yeah, like having a fear of one more than another. Like, I don't mean racial bias. I mean like some kind of just political bias. That you view yourself as more to the right, and so you fear the left more? No, not necessarily, because I don't know that I would have said that before the last few years. I mean, I yeah. guess I guess my level of fear of any... And, and when I say fear, it's not like I live in, in fear. If I had a moment, I could go show you the beautiful AR-15 I just built in Denver Broncos <laughs> colors. It is amazing. Um, so I don't, I don't live in fear. Uh, you know, I'm a very well-armed Jew. Uh, but um, but I, I, a few years ago, I would have simply said, I'm not afraid of anybody. Now my level of fear of both sides is up. But just watching what happened in the streets, yeah. uh, in, in all those riots and all those cities burning, and, uh, uh, and, and of course you saw January 6th too. And then you show me those two groups of people, right? I'm way more afraid of the huge numbers of people that burned cities than I am of the smaller number of people who were also violent and misled and moronic, and I don't defend them, and I've never defended them, but the city burners scare me more than the capital, whatever noun you want to attach to them. And what do you think about the talks of there being such a divide in this country that maybe we're headed to something like civil war? Because that comes up a lot nowadays. You at least hear it, whether it's true or not. Because we've had a lot of tough times in history in this country, and I think people tend to get caught up in the moment about how bad a particular moment is. But but on the other hand, we've never had a world like this where social media allows us to connect so quickly and for dangerous narratives um, to be used in a way both by government and by – individuals in a way that is polarizing. Yeah, I I'm most of the time quite optimistic about the fundamental character of the American people. I, I don't feel that way about our, you know, Congress and whatever, but the the American people I've always felt like we are something special. And even my wife, my Australian wife who's an American citizen now, but you know, we had dinner with a friend last night and we we're talking about what it was like in Australia during COVID and all the restrictions there. And she says, she says, for as long as I've been in America, 
as many times, every time I've been in America, and a lot of that is way before she met me. She said, I've always felt freer here than, than in Australia, even though most Americans think that the countries are almost the same. They're not. And does she have family there still? She has family there and here. And what did they think about what Australia, Australia was doing during COVID? Cause I've heard different things from Australians and maybe again, it has to do with political bias and where, where someone is, but mostly my sense is, you know, a few people got real mad, but mostly my sense is the people just sort of took it. And, and for those who, who don't know, uh, Australia is broken up into states, but it's, it's more like the provinces of Canada than the states of the United States. There's a small number of states and they're very, very large. Uh, the country's about the same size as the U.S. So they were not allowed to travel between states. Australian citizens were not allowed to travel from, from Queensland to uh, New South Wales. You know, yeah, imagine right. if you weren't allowed to go from somewhere on the West Coast to somewhere in the Midwest as an American citizen. You couldn't cr- cross some line in your own country. And, you know, I, I think most of them didn't really protest very much. And gosh, it frustrated the hell out of me. You know, I'm not there. Like, why are you? You hear this term sheeple, which I think is a great term. And I, I just feel like they were sheeple. And and uh, a lot of the Canadian government, the Canadian people right now who are going along with the prime minister up there, Justin Trudeau, uh, you know, sheeple. And I think... I think a lot of Americans aren't sheeple, but, and I want to get your take on this, I think for the better part of a generation, every level of education, K through 12, at least in public schools and higher education, have been trying to remove the American spirit from Americans and trying to turn us into sheeple. And they're having a lot of success, and it scares me. Yeah. I can't say because I haven't been in school for a while. I'm well removed from my public education at the University of Michigan. And my kids are in private school. They, they go to Christian schools. And, and we've enjoyed that. We've really liked the education there. And we feel like they get a, get a good American and also Christian education in those schools, which is something we like having them have. So I can't say what other people are experiencing, other parents are experiencing, but I do think there's this sense that the things that made America a a beautiful place, which is this idea of opportunity and equality before the law and um, uh, love of liberty that those are being supplanted and in the classroom people are being taught not about what a wonderful place this is despite its many flaws right no country Mm -hmm. is perfect and we have many flaws but i don't think we should be teaching people just what's wrong with america because there are a lot of young people especially who haven't experienced anything outside of this country and are unaware actually at how bad and dangerous and scary a lot of the rest of the world is and how few rights people have um, or how little their rights are protected, let me put it that way, in other parts of the world. Uh, My parents, having come from 
the Middle East, I can tell you firsthand from their experience, uh, the world is not a nice place. And we have a wonderful country here in the United States where people can do things. And we, we do believe in equality before the law, even if it's not always followed, even if that uh, breaks down from time to time where the government is not doing the right thing or people are bad to each other in different ways. The overall ethos of this country is one of loving others, caring for others, uh, working together and protecting the rights of the individual. And I think that's getting lost. I think a lot of schools today are now teaching students that equality is bad, the equality before the law, and that what we need instead is this thing they call equity, which is really the opposite of equality before the law. Mm -hmm. And they're using a word that sounds like equality but has a very different meaning to try to look like they've, they haven't really changed what America is about when they're talking about it. But if you talk about uh, equity in society, what you're really saying is the government is going to intervene to decide who's deserving and who's not deserving. The government doesn't know anything about our individual lives. It doesn't know whether you had a hard time or I had a hard time or someone else. It can make some guesses. But it's wrong for the government to step in and say, we're going to try to equalize everyone because it's going to get it wrong for sure. Almost yeah. all the time, it's going to get it wrong. And I don't trust some person in Washington, D.C. or the state capitol deciding who's deserving and who's not deserving. This is what happens in the Middle East. That's, that idea is what happens in really bad countries. Where they decide if you're from a particular background or you're from a particular family or you're from the right religion, then you'll get some help. And if you're not, we're going to try to harm you because we need to make sure that the right outcome happens. And we can uh, sugarcoat it in the United States you know, and say, oh, well, it's, it's to try to make everyone have the same opportunity, but – you know, in, in every country, when they do this stuff, they claim they're doing it in the name of some kind of justice, right? No, no dictator or authoritarian regime or whatever it might be throughout the world claims it's doing its thing in the name of hurting people. It always claims it's doing it in the name of justice and honor and dignity and all the rest. Um, and so I think we have to be very careful about that stuff. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I talk to lots and lots of parents and I tell you, everywhere it's it's bad, and they're they're teaching our kids to not, well to dislike the United States of America and focusing only on the flaws. And we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but I want to just mention one other thing. You know, this whole um, justice thing, so-called anti-racism, equity, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion—all that—I I think it's a giant grift. I think it is, it's become its own industry with mostly untalented people condescending to CEOs of companies and superintendents of school districts to make themselves sound knowledgeable and superior so that these people will hire them to put on overpriced diversity, equity, and inclusion training. And then you see these things like what came out of Coca-Cola where someone let the PowerPoint out into the public 
and and they were telling people to try not to be so white. You know, what does that mean? And one of the leaders of this nonsense is a guy at Boston University named Ibram X. Kendi. That's not his real name, but that's Mm -hmm. what he goes by now. And he's one of the leaders of the so-called anti-racism movement. And uh, there's, there's a phrase that's used a lot lately, maybe overused, but he said the quiet part out loud. And, and what Ibram Kendi said was the only proper solution for past discrimination is present discrimination. And the only solution for present discrimination is future discrimination, right? So he's saying because there was, let's, let's say, anti-black racism in the past, which surely there was that the solution to that is to be racist against white people now rather than to try to achieve Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream that I know you and I both want to see come true of judging people based on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. These people are making money. These people are getting rich by telling Americans that Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream is is the wrong aspiration and we shouldn't try to achieve it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to uh, a caller. And if anyone wants to uh, call in, feel free to do so. And let's just try to make sure that the calls stay on the topic at hand. Um, But I'm going to go to Wes. Can you hear me? Hey Wes, how are you doing? Good. Yourself? Very good. Okay, this is actually kind of going a little bit back when you guys were talking about, you know, working towards something, succeeding. And I was just kind of had a general question about how you, well, what kind of correlation do you see with behaviors and habits and mindsets that usually relates to individual success, as you obviously have been a very successful person? Um, and then I guess when you want to accomplish something, you know, how do you go about executing, you know, your goal? All right. And Wes, is that for, for me or Justin or both? Both. Both. Yep. Both. Okay. So I'll, I'll say two things, but it'll kind of be repetitive from before. But r- really hard work and making sure that the decision makers know that you're out there working hard and ready to work hard. And, and I'll add one other, actually, but it's, it's actually repeating something that Justin said originally rather than something I said. Most people, not most, many people, especially when they are fairly young, don't take enough risk. Okay. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that a lot of people are afraid to do what needs to be done at the right moment. And that means taking a chance. Uh, I think people tend to settle in too easily and say, I'm comfortable doing what I'm doing and I don't want to challenge myself. The number one thing I I see from young people who apply to my office and sometimes I've had staff where I've had to have a chat with them is a lack of confidence. They often think that the other people are really qualified and really capable and they are not, even though they have just as much capability as those other people. And this leads people not to push themselves. You know, I've, 
I, I think that we get too caught up in this world of assuming that your opponent is ahead, your opponent is better. You're always told this when you're in any competition. Like politicians hear this all the time. Always run your campaign like you're 20 points behind or always uh, assume that your opponent is working harder than you. And I think that's actually the wrong attitude. I think that tends to lead to a lack of confidence in people. The idea that everyone is working harder than them and that you're 20 points behind. I think you need to run not like you're 20 points behind, but like whatever the actual situation is. So if you're if you're 10 points up in a race, you should run like you're 10 points up. If you are um, if you're comparing yourself to other people and thinking about how hard they're working, you should think about the fact that they're probably not working very hard. And actually, if you just put a little effort into it, you can crush them at whatever whatever the uh, competition is. So, you know, I, I think a lot of young people, unfortunately, do not do what it takes because they are nervous about the competition. They always think the competition is better than they are. And so they don't take the chances and don't push themselves. They think it's just too much of a, too much of a leap. And, and so it's a matter of confidence. I think confidence is number one. So how, I guess, would you balance that between, you know, being egotistical and confident with some humbleness to it? Cause I feel like it could come off very egotistical if you're taking these large risks and very confident about those decisions. It can come off as e- egotistical for sure. Some of that is hard to avoid. For example, I always operated as a very confident member of Congress and certainly as a very confident campaigner. When people would ask me on the campaign trail, what do you think about the race? I would say, I don't think there's any weight I'm going to lose. And people sometimes found that offensive and and even egotistical. But actually, I was just being honest about the situation. And I think it's better to be honest about the situation. And it is, And it actually rubs off on people who are listening. Like if you go into a race, uh, like I'm talking about politics because that's you know that's what I know yeah. over the past ten years. But if you go into a competition and you make it seem like you might lose or you're not well equipped to win it or whatever, what do you think your audience is going to think? They're going to think the same thing about you. So you have to go into it confident. Now that confidence should be based in reality. Yeah, It shouldn't be like you're actually 20 points down in the polls and you <laughs> have very little chance of winning and you're saying you're going to win. But look, if, if you're ahead and you know it, you should say it because that's the thing to do. Like if you want to um, exert that influence on the people who are, who are watching the competition. I, I also think young people, like they shouldn't be – bragging about something they're not capable of doing but if they're confident and they know they can do it then go for it i don't think there's any harm in that like ego comes in when you are when you're irrationally confident i don't think being confident on its own is an ego problem i i think it's when you're irrationally confident that you have an ego problem and a lot of people are irrationally confident too that's a that's a separate problem but what i guess what i'm trying to say is Generally, what you're taught is that the irrational confidence 
or what we'd call ego is the bigger problem. But actually, I think the irrational underconfidence is the bigger problem. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And let me add one other thing. You know, Justin's talking about a particular kind of situation that he knows well running for office. I want to go to something uh, that m might apply to more people, but I also think a huge number of people have figured this out in the past year and a half. So it's not as big an insight as it might have been before that. Uh, way too many people stay in jobs that they shouldn't stay in. And with this great resignation, a lot of people have figured that out. But if anybody's still kind of on the fence, like you're even thinking, Am I, should I really be doing what I'm doing now? Should I be doing something else? I want to recommend something to you. And that is a, a, an episode of the Freakonomics podcast. And this is going back. This, this episode is it's definitely more than five years old, and it might be closer to 10. And it's called The Upside of Quitting. And uh, all right, I'll tell you a short story. I had a radio producer who produced my show when I got my full-time job. And he was, when he wasn't working for me, my show was on 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. in the morning. So he'd show up at like 4 in the morning and do some stuff, and he'd be with me till 10. And then he was, tr he was building this other brand of his own, this other business with um, a, a little radio show and a website. And they were focusing on dating and on eating and drinking, like going out in Denver. And, you know, he's younger than I am, right? So that's what they're doing. They're eating and drinking and dating. And and I asked him, why are you working for me, you know, for starting at 4 a.m.? It's not really building your brand. You're not making that much money. You know, he'd been doing it for 20 years. So it was this kind of inertia. And I told him to go listen to that podcast, The Upside of Quinny. And I explained the concept of, opportunity cost to him. And over that Christmas holiday, a couple months later, after I introduced him to this stuff, he quit and he called to thank me. And, and he's been doing great since then in building his brand and doing well and loving it. And I, I think, again, a lot of people have figured this out with the great resignation from COVID, but I, I, I think that's a, and it, it falls into this category of not taking enough risk that we were talking about. People think that by quitting and going to do something else that they're taking a lot of risk. You may actually be taking a lot more risk than you think and a lot more risk than you want by staying. Mm -hmm. Thank you, guys. That, that is awesome insight. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Wes. So, Ross, Jared Polis is your governor. I sometimes get pushback when I say nice things about Jared Polis on my uh, Twitter account. Can me you too. give me an objective? Can you give me an objective view of what people in Colorado think about him and, and whether you think he's to the, to, to the extent you think a governor is doing a good job, what do you think about how he's doing? And maybe you've got to parse that a little bit because you're more uh, to the right of him. I guess on a number of issues, but you have a democratic governor and how's he doing at least in that context? In the context of being a democratic governor, he's doing about as well as any democratic governor I can think of. Uh, he, he was much more, I guess I'll say libertarian and he would probably say libertarian about certain aspects of COVID where, you know, he moved away 
first of all, he was much slower to move two restrictions than other Democrats were. And he only moved two restrictions when counties started doing it and creating this patchwork in Colorado that was a mess. And he felt like he had to move. But throughout all this, he was talking to people in a way that libertarians like you and I, Justin, would understand. He's like, why do I have to tell you to do this? I don't want to have to force you to do it. Like, don't be a moron. Just, you know, get the shot, wear a mask. And remember, early on, especially, he's like, we don't, we don't, really know for sure what masks do or or don't do. There's a lot we don't know. But what's the downside, uh, uh, you know, other than just being sort of uh, like, oh, you're not, you know, you're not the boss of me, right? And Jared was like, what's, just wear the mask. Don't be a jackass. Uh, and, but he he moved away from restrictions before and and any kind of mandates before other Democrats did. And I think it's going to serve him pretty well. I I do think there's going to be a red wave across this country, but boy, in the last 10 years, Colorado's become incredibly blue. Trump lost Colorado. I don't have the number in front of me. I want somewhere around 15 points. Hmm. And even if there's a red wave, I think Jared's fairly popular and he has an unlimited amount of money to spend. I don't know his net worth, but it's widely reported to be, you know, some nine-figure number, some yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars. So he's going to be very hard to beat. Yeah. Is there a Republican candidate right now? Yes. A, a few? I think there's a few, but there's one who seems to be getting the most attention, and she's a friend of mine, and her name is Heidi Ganahl, G-A-N-A-H-L. And she has won elected office as a regent of the University of Colorado. And she's a very, very smart and nice person, maybe a little too nice for this fight, but uh, and, and very successful. She created a, a chain, a franchise business of uh, doggy daycares called Camp Bow Wow that probably a lot of people <laughs> listening have heard of. And she sold it for a lot of money. And she's she's excellent. But. You know, Jared Polis is a, a experienced, talented, uh, infinitely well-funded politician. And, you know, Jared's my friend, but I'm, you know, I'm going to vote for Heidi and we'll, we'll see. It's going to be an uphill battle, though. Yeah. How about on other issues besides COVID? Have there been, have there been other issues that have been big in the news or is it mostly a COVID thing like it is a lot of well, one of the, of the interesting, country. yeah, well, it, it's mostly been COVID the past couple of years. There have been a, some big issues. Uh, energy regulation has been a big thing. And Jared has been pretty much in lockstep with the Democrats in the state legislature on that, seeming to be pretty opposed to the energy industry here in Colorado. But he also understands that he, if he goes too far with it, it'll probably cost him a lot of votes because it that's a lot of money for this for this state. Your legislature is democratic? Yes. And what's interesting about it at at some points it does seem like the legislature is well to the left of Jared and we're reliant on Jared to keep them in check even though he's a member of the same party. Yeah. And he does that a little bit. And and one of the interesting things and again look Jared is unbelievably clever and he plays the game of politics really, really well. And he knows where to moderate. And so he's been out there frequently calling for a cut in the 
state income tax rate. Now, he doesn't really say whether he would require that to be done with something else that would raise revenue somewhere else, right, versus just a standalone income tax cut. But for any Democrat to say, I support cutting the income tax rate is something that's unusual. Yeah, well, he's a pretty libertarian guy. I mean, I know he has to play some of the Democratic politics being a Democratic governor. There's no way around that. But when he was in the House with me in Congress, I kept track of people's voting records. It's a a little scorecard that I kept personally to see how libertarian people were. And Jared Polis was consistently a top 10, top 15 sort of person for the entire House of Representatives. Um, so on the things I'm scoring, he's up there, and he was beating out, you know, hundreds of people in both parties. So he's a pretty libertarian guy, and and I I can't follow Colorado politics closely, obviously, but I do get pushback from some libertarians from time to time saying he's oh he's not libertarian on this or that. But yeah, you yeah, know, when I, you I think my biggest frustration with him on a big issue. Is healthcare? He's he's for single payer, which doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, but yeah, he's quite libertarian. And it's funny whenever some magazine writes an article describing him as a libertarian, he sends it to me just to remind me. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he's he's tried to emphasize to me in the past that he's he's very libertarian because he, he's afraid I'll lose faith in him, I guess, or yeah. something. But. I, I know him well. I've known him for many years, and I'm not going to lose faith in him because of um, some differences on some issues because I know the issues we worked on, and he was right right there with me on so many things. So anyone you're serving with is going to disagree with you on a thing or two, um, including some big items. You know, It's yeah. not just going to be small items, sometimes very big items. But you got to look at the the whole picture and see how they're doing. As an example, you know when people tell me, "Oh, he's not very libertarian on things." I mean, you look at something like the Patriot Act, right? Which, to the right now, voting for the Patriot Act is like a terrible thing. You know, there were many years ago where supporting the Patriot Act was considered the conservative thing, but now with all that's going on, say in Canada, for example with the way they are shutting down finances, freezing people's bank accounts, etc. All of a sudden, the right has new enthusiasm about the Patriot Act and how it has to be stopped. And if you look back at voting records, you'll see that someone like Ron DeSantis in Florida, he's voting for the Patriot Act. And Jared Polis in Colorado is voting against the Patriot Act. So when people say, you know, who's more libertarian you got to look at the whole record and think about it. And there's no doubt, there's no doubt when I was in Congress, Polis was more libertarian than DeSantis. And I remember when Jared <laughs> so, was, when, when Pelosi was looking to raise capital gains taxes, Polis was like in the newspaper saying he opposed it. And he was a, he was maybe in his first term in Congress. And it's pretty ballsy for a, a new congressman to go against the leader of the party, the Speaker of the House. But he, he did on capital gains taxes. Look, I, um, I, I'm going to vote for Heidi if she's the Republican nominee. But if I have to have a Democrat, um, I'll go with Jared. <laughs> yeah, could be, no, there, I, could be, there could be a lot worse. Yeah, I be, think it could be your governor. 
Yeah, that's right. I think you're. <laughs> I think you're lucky if if Jared's your fallback person. I think you're lucky where like yeah. if where if it doesn't work mm-hmm. out, you get Jared Polis. I think that's actually a pretty fortunate situation. Mm-hmm. I do wonder whether maybe he should. Uh, especially if he wins, if he wins re-election, put his name out there, uh, maybe for a presidential bid on the Democratic side. Their their bench is so thin that I don't know, you know, how they're going to get someone who can compete with the Republican candidate uh, next time around. So uh, you probably heard about this very, very devastating fire that we had 20 miles north of here right at the end of the year, the Marshall Fire and all these houses, right? And it was unbelievable. When you drive by and see the destruction, you you can't believe it. There was a hospital that had to close, and it it reopened. Somehow, like miraculously, it, it didn't burn. There was some smoke stuff they had to clean up, but it reopened. And I went and did my radio show from that hospital on the day that it reopened, and... I invited Jared to come join me for part of the show, and he did. Mm-hmm. And so there are two things that I need to tell you about that experience, having Jared come. And I've, he's, you know, been on the show lots of times before, but that was very nice of him to come show up at the hospital. And it's good press for him, too, right, showing up with the hospital's reopening. That's fine. But so two things that you need to know. Number one, I, I texted him before and, and said, make sure you bring donuts because I'll be hungry. And... I was talking with one of his security people, a very nice young woman, but before Jared, she arrived before Jared, and I said, I wonder if he's bringing donuts. And she said, oh yeah, we got a text at 11.30 last night to make sure we bring donuts. So he brought two boxes of Dunkin' Donuts, and we had some, and we shared some with the staff at the hospital. So that's good. And then I asked Jared, are you running for president? Uh, because it's been speculated in some of the press here a little bit, actually, that some of the reason maybe he's been so libertarian and uh, on the COVID stuff, maybe he's thinking of running for president. And and he said, absolutely not. He said, I've got two young kids. I love Colorado. I, I've done my time in D.C. I want to watch my kids, you know, go through middle school, go through high school. Uh, and he said, no interest in running for president maybe you can ask me again in 30 years and, and maybe I'll change my mind. And then the Denver Post asked him and he said the same thing. So I yeah. think he's not running soon anyway. I don't know. Isn't that what you have to say, though? If no. You're, if you're, no. Because he's running for re-election as governor, right? And yeah, but you... all you have to say is I'm not thinking about any of that stuff. I'm thinking about running for governor. You wouldn't say I'm not running for president. Although John Hickenlooper, who was mayor of Denver and then governor of Colorado – did say he has no interest in being a U.S. senator. He said it repeatedly, and he said that he didn't have the skill set to be a U.S. senator, and then he changed his mind and ran, and that stuff was used against him, but it was such a blue wave that he beat Cory Gardner anyway, but uh, it was interesting. It, you know, it was Yeah, interesting. you may also remember Marco Rubio saying, I will be a private citizen after this, and then he ran for, for senate again. Oh, so, dude, how disappointing is that guy? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> He's well, one of one of many. Well, I don't know if I can, from my perspective, I don't know if I can call it disappointment as much as he he met my expectations for him. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I there are disappointing people in Congress, but I don't know. He's he's just bad all around from my perspective. 
Yeah, so, I, I had higher hopes than than you did when he announced the, uh, that he was going to run against Charlie Crist back in his first race for Senate. I sent him some money, and you know well, he did a good job in the state legislature in in Florida, and I had pretty high hopes for him, and he sure he sure let me down. Um, I, but I shouldn't be disappointed. Like you're one of the only people who didn't let me down. <laughs> Thanks. I I appreciate that. Uh, that that does mean a lot. So. What do you, what do you think between these two parties? You know, you talked about, and I don't know what you're registered as now. Are you a Republican? Unaffiliated. Unaffiliated. Okay. Between these two parties, Republicans and Democrats, do you think there's an opening for libertarians or or an independent candidate in the right place, or even at the presidential level? No. What if but, it's what if it's like not Biden? The- Biden versus Trump, for example? Probably still no. And the reason is not philosophical or policy. The reason mm-hmm. is the structure of our system. I, I just, I mean, think about the, the most successful third party candidate we ever had. I think that was Ross Perot. I think so. Although and, I don't, I mean, I don't know going very far back, but yes. Right. At I least mean, in modern times. Yeah. I, I guess, did Teddy Roosevelt run third party? He uh, Bull Moose Party or something. But in, in, you know, while you and I are alive, yeah. right, by far the most successful third party candidate was, was Ross Perot. And he didn't win a single electoral vote. Right. And I, I don't know. You tell me. You've, you've done this. I haven't. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you got to be a very special person in a very special district to be able to run as an independent or as a libertarian or on the left as a green and to have any chance because there's just so much money and infrastructure and organization surrounding the main parties. And also it's very tribal, right? People grew up voting D or R and they're they're You're going to have to, the burden is on you to make that person switch from D or R and it's a heavy, very heavy lift. And I, I'm not saying it's impossible. For president, it's impossible. I think it's impossible. See, that's where I disagree with you. I actually think that the higher up the race, the more plausible it is. Because actually, it's people who are running in races that are not so consequential, like local races or maybe even a state legislative race, where they are heavily dependent on the structure. Mm-hmm. They they totally depend on the party because nobody knows anything about the candidates at that point. When you're running in a very small race, people don't know anything about you. Nobody knows who their county commissioner is. I mean, some people do, but not many people. So what ends up happening is they are almost entirely dependent on the letter behind their name. But actually, when you get higher up to something like, say, U.S. Senate or governor or especially president, the party label actually is almost irrelevant and it becomes more highly dependent on the candidate. And I just mean if you have the right candidate. I don't think it's irrelevant if you have weak candidates. I I completely agree. But if you have a strong candidate – as a good example of Donald Trump, right? If Donald Trump – who, for all his flaws and all of my you know, issues with him, I thought was a very good campaigner. If Donald Trump today ran a third-party campaign, I think he would be very successful, regardless of the fact that he has none of the structural advantages. 
And in some ways, his own primary campaign was an example of this. Donald Trump had none of the structural advantages in that primary campaign. The, the system was designed to stop someone like him, and he ran roughshod over it because he was a uh, compelling enough candidate, whatever we may think of him. Again, you know, I voted to impeach him, so, <laughs> so I have got plenty yeah. of issues with him. But what I'm saying is as a candidate, he was a strong candidate, and – I think that's true because he's running at a very high level, and he, as a result, he gets a lot of media attention. If if Donald Trump in 2016, instead of running for president, he runs for mayor or something like that, he loses. Yeah, but if Donald Trump runs in 2016 as an independent, he also loses. Now, 20 20- oh maybe he does. I'm not saying he he necessarily wins, but I think he makes a race of it. I don't think he gets a single electoral vote. Now, running again. You know, but, it, it, but to push back before you before you go on, on electoral votes, the issue there is it's winner take all in so many yeah, states. Right. So it's not a matter of like, well, he didn't win an electoral vote, so therefore he was unsuccessful. Because there's like a breaking point in each state. If you reach a certain threshold, you're going to get all the electoral votes in that state. So it, it just the the person who has the advantage in that state is going to get a ton. So you get sort of this, what looks like a wave when someone, someone could win by 1% in every single state. And then they're going to have every electoral vote just about, just about in the country. There are some States that have a a split system, but yeah, that person will get almost every electoral vote in the whole country, even though they only won 51 to 49. No, I get that. But uh, isn't, when you're running for president, isn't getting zero electoral votes the <laughs> definition of failure? I mean, and there have been a lot of it's good. Certainly Republican- not, it's certainly not success. Yeah, I look. I voted for Harry Brown. I voted for um, uh, Gary Johnson. I I got fooled and voted for Evan McMullen, and I regret that vote. Um, I would have voted for Gary Johnson in 2016, except. He said that he wouldn't stop smoking marijuana until he got elected, right? Even during the campaign, he said, I'm going to just keep smoking pot. And I'm like, I don't care. I, I, you know, I'm a libertarian. I don't care about if you're smoking pot. But at least treat this seriously. Like, you're going to be stoned while you're doing. So anyway, I, I vote libertarian. And, you know, let's imagine a hypothetical libertarian candidate in the future. Let's make up a name. Um, Tustin Damash. Um, right. Just somebody with a name like Tustin Dimash runs for runs for president as a libertarian. Well, that person loses on the name alone. But I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to vote for that person. Yeah. Uh, but uh, how does he get enough money? How does he get on the debate stage if that whole thing doesn't change? And if you're not there, then there's just there. There's so much against. Well, I'll say us so much against us structurally. Yeah, there are structural impediments, but I think the structural impediments are actually much bigger the lower down you go. And and I say this as someone with experience, and I can only say it having run in Republican primaries, of course, but I think there's a similar sort of thing when you're running in a Republican primary. When you are running at a very local level, like I did my first race as a, a state rep candidate, and that's it can get more local than that. But there's no doubt in my mind that that was by far the most difficult race I ever had. By far. 
And it wasn't just because it was my first race. It was because of the the level of government I was running at gets no attention. So in order to survive, in order to even get recognized, you have to put so much effort into it. But when you're running at the presidential level, there's so much built-in publicity just from being on the ballot. Now, you have to be a competent person. You mm-hmm. have to be charismatic and qualified and all that. But you you cut through so many barriers immediately just by having some name idea. Let's let's go to um, another caller here. Travis? Hey, how's it going, sir? This is Travis Johnson. Uh, I'm actually running as an independent in Minnesota's 7th Congressional District, uh, small L. And, uh, awesome. What we're finding here, anyway, is there is so much thirst for some another option. There's so many people who introduce themselves as Ron Paul Republicans versus Republicans because they don't they don't consider themselves actual Republicans anymore. They're a different breed of Republican, so to speak. Uh, and we actually have a case here where we don't have a Democrat running currently. Uh, so, so there are some, some options. I mean, when you start getting to the presidential races, what I think is going to be important is to have third parties or independents in Congress that will, that will help show, hey, yes, this guy is legitimate because, look, we've actually got members in Congress. Yeah. Yeah, I do think, um, Travis, that to to amend a little bit what I said, there are certain races around the country where one of the major parties does not field a candidate. And I do think there is an opening in those particular races that is unique, that it's never going to happen at the presidential level or at, at certain very high levels. Um, because the as you get really high up, the, the major parties or the old parties are always going to field a candidate. But there are certain local races or lower level races where one of the parties won't even field a candidate, and that does create an opening for people who are independent or libertarian that I think uh, puts you in a unique position where you might be able to actually break through. So, yeah, go ahead, Travis. I was just going to to thank you for taking my call, and you got a bunch of people in line, so I don't want to take up all your time. Thanks, Travis. And – I remember uh, last year you were talking about helping libertarians run for office. Keep me in mind, sir. Thank you. Will do. Thanks so much. Thank Take you. Care. Good luck. Yeah, it's an interesting district. I think it's a rural district. It's very red. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's what you'd expect in, in rural Minnesota, I suppose. Yeah, let's go to Richard. You have to unmute your mic, Richard. You there? Yeah. Hey, yes. Richard, how you doing? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, this question is going to be for Ross. Uh, you mentioned uh, a Tustin Dimash possibly running for president. Uh, who would you think would make for a, a good vice presidential candidate to, to run with uh, a Tustin Dimash? Wow. Um, well, I can put on my Joe Biden hat and said, we got We better go find a black woman libertarian. Um you know, Justin, uh, I mean, Tustin, knows the players in that party a, a lot better than I do. I, I think, I, okay, I think two things. It needs to be someone really likable. I, I think that is every bit as important as, 
I, I'm not going to give you a name because I don't know a name. Not because I'm not not because I'm dodging. I, it needs to be someone really likable. There, there's a reason that that Kamala Harris is and has always been something of a weight around Joe Biden's neck, and it's because she's intensely unlikable. So uh, it, it needs to be someone likable. But I also think we just need to remember that almost nobody votes based on the running mate, Republican, Democrat, whatever. It's it's all about the candidate. And you just really need to pick someone who you know won't hurt you. I think uh, Tustin Dimash would actually do really well to, to carry that through. And I was actually thinking of somebody uh, within the Libertarian Party like uh, Spike Cohen might uh, might do a good job. I was actually talking with uh, Joe Jorgensen about that this last weekend, how she thinks that he's really been doing a good job with uh, improving himself and his position. And uh, she only had good things to say. And I thought, well... Both of these guys seem. Yeah, if we can find someone who matches up to our our vision of this principled and energetic Tustin Dimash, then you know maybe we'll have something to build on. Agreed. And uh, thanks for taking my call. Hey, thanks, Richard. And Richard, I saw in uh, Long Beach. I was there um, for the Libertarian convention in california and uh he's a great guy spent some time with him so thanks for thanks for calling in richard um so what do you think about uh, what's going on in canada now you've tweeted I, about this a few times yeah i i think i think what's going on in canada shows how lucky we are to have the United States Constitution, even though we don't have enough politicians who are faithful to it. Yeah, but the the stuff the stuff they're facing, we have faced in different ways. You know, they're using emergency powers to do things, but Congress passed the Patriot Act. Congress has passed a whole bunch of garbage over the years that has given our government all sorts of powers to violate our rights. And I sometimes wonder if in getting caught up in the hype about Canada, people lose sight of the fact that a lot of these problems exist right here at home. And it's true we have a constitution which gives us greater protections in many respects than what's going on in Canada, um, at least on the surface, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have the sort of blatant effort by the government to publicly say we are – violating your rights canada they just can say flat out we're going to do this thing we're going to invoke this emergencies act and screw your rights and they have the same problems in places like the united kingdom in the united states we've got a constitution that uh, protects all of our rights in a more formal way than what they have in these other countries however what ends up happening in practice is the government claims it's protecting your rights while violating them more privately through things like the Patriot Act. And I do wonder if Americans just get a little bit too caught up in this stuff and lose sight of the fact that it's, it's happening right here as well. Like I, I don't know what would stop the U S government from, for example, from freezing bank accounts. Yeah. So I think, 
in the middle of your comment there, I think you hit on the key difference. You used the word blatant describing what Canada is doing. And I think that's the key difference, right? What most of the time when the government is violating a person's rights, much of the time the person whose rights are being violated doesn't even know. And almost all the time, nobody else knows, right? Like if the government were violating your rights, depending on what we're talking about, you might or might not know sitting where you are in Michigan. And unless you called me and told me, me sitting here in Colorado would have no idea that the government is messing with Justin. But what's going on in Canada, everyone sees it. And here in America, I think especially people on the right are so pissed off, really deeply, they're, it's not just that they're angry, they're morally outraged that the people who were burning cities throughout the summer after George Floyd got so little punishment. Unless you killed somebody, you probably didn't get punished for anything you did, right? Uh, Unless you were Kyle Rittenhouse. Right. Unless you were the, like the one white conservative. And I'm not I'm not saying Kyle Rittenhouse is a hero or anything. OK, I'm just but everybody knows that the BLM violence essentially went unpunished. A lot of people try to compare that with the January 6th thing. I'm just going to leave the January 6th thing uh, alone. And then you see what's going on in Canada with protests that are are certainly inconvenient and in some ways, maybe illegal, like blocking roads more than they're allowed to, but nonviolent, absolutely nonviolent. And the government is coming out saying, if you participated in this, we're going to tell your bank to freeze your bank account and turn off your credit card, and we're going to ruin you. Even if you're not a leader, and and even if we only find out later you're not there now and we find a picture later that you were participating, we're going to ruin you. And I got to say, I'm shocked and and disappointed that there isn't something closer to a revolution going on in Canada right now. That was disgusting. And I think even uh, in as bad a place as the U.S. is right now, I I don't think the U.S. would have tolerated that. I also think there's a huge difference that a lot of what's going on in Canada is coming from the federal level. And most of the stuff we've had to deal with through COVID came through state and county levels, not not federal for most people. Yeah, except when the Biden administration tried to do the employer right. uh, requirement. Right. Uh, but tell me why you think that is more dangerous than what happens in the U.S. where – Maybe our same um, the same sorts of violations are happening, but we are not noticing them. Or we have a country of 330 million people, so it's a little more spread out. It's happening here and there rather than in some kind of concentrated fashion like you saw in, in Ottawa and Canada. Um, why do you think it's it's better or a better system that it happens quietly or secretly? You didn't ask me if I thought it was better, and I didn't say I thought it was better. You you yeah. a, you asked me something like, "Why are people so angry about it?" Yeah, uh, I'm I'm not saying it's better. In a way, I I think that if the government is going to violate people's rights, 
Not in a way. I at least strike the in a way part. If if government is going to violate people's rights, I want it as public as possible. And I'm against the Patriot Act, and uh, I always have been. And so I, I think secret violations of rights are scarier and worse. But that's a different question from why are people so angry about Canada now. It's because they see it and they know it. And I'd also point out that until... Trump, more or less, a lot of America had a lot more faith in um, in the FBI and intelligence services than they do now, especially on the right. It's kind of weird, like so many things, the positions have re- were reversed, right? Like 10 years ago, conservatives probably loved the FBI and loved the CIA, and now they loathe or fear them, and liberals like them a lot more. It's, it's very strange. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm not saying that what we have going on is better it's just less obvious yeah because i think the selective stuff can be very dangerous the selective um outrage and i understand why people are upset about it is as i am you know i've tweeted about it i think it's horrible what's happening in canada but i'm also horrified by why by what happens here in the united states from our government and a lot of times you can bring it up with people and I don't know, I guess because it's not in the news every day, they sort of dismiss it. Whereas what's going on in Canada, people get riled up. And I do worry about the sort of slow creep of tyranny that happens here versus something that's very obvious and you can run counter to. And I gave the example of the Patriot Act earlier where we had votes on basically what's going on in Canada in Congress in 2016. Like, we had a vote on basically the same issue. Can the government come in and freeze bank accounts and um, ask for disclosures of private data from banks, compel that kind of stuff? And overwhelmingly, Republicans said, yes, they can. That they supported the government coming in and freezing bank accounts and compelling disclosures. And the Democrats were split 50-50, but nonetheless, it was overwhelmingly supported in Congress. Fortunately, when we had that particular vote that I'm thinking of, it required two-thirds, and they fell just short of two-thirds. But you had almost two-thirds of Congress saying what was going on in Canada right now is just fine. And not a person on the right. You don't see a single pundit saying, can you believe Congress did that? They certainly didn't say at the time, and they're not saying it now either, in retrospect, even though they must know that kind of stuff is out there. They know about the Patriot Act. So I think that that is a frustration for me as someone who worked in Congress and as someone who's worried about this gradual move toward tyranny, toward uh, government coercion. And and I just – I don't know how to get the, the media charged up about this stuff, but – they just generally aren't not charged up about it. And I don't know, like for someone like you who's in the media, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit tough, right? Because you don't, you don't necessarily know about every single thing that's going on in Congress. It's not possible. No, I, you I know, don't. you know, I think getting the media to care is one question, but one thing that occurred to me when you were talking is, is, you know, maybe with the Canada thing, you say to people, so, did you like what the Canadian government did to those people? No, of course not. 
well, how about this thing that's being done in America? Do you know about this? And use that as an opening, especially a kind of opening where you're immediately going to get them a little pissed off at government intrusion into people's rights, which is what you want to do in this yeah. kind of conversation. And then say, all right, here's something that's happening in America now. And it's pretty much the same. Why don't you call your congressman about it? Or why don't you elect me to office? And I promise I will never support anything like this here. Um, yeah, I think about that a lot with, with uh, not the Canada connection, but with civil asset forfeiture, mm-hmm. which I think policing for profit is one of the most disgusting things. I, I cannot believe there hasn't been a Supreme Court case to outlaw that. It's theft. And to me, that's the kind of thing that just, oh, it infuriates me. Yeah, it's very obviously theft. And that's another example where it happens here in the United States and there aren't enough people on the right speaking out about it. They're, you know, they'll talk about what's going on in Canada, but who's going to bring up civil asset forfeiture? I bring it up all the time, but I can't even get some of my most libertarian former colleagues now to say anything about civil asset forfeiture or other sorts of abuses that the government's involved in. It, it's almost like it requires some kind of news story before anyone cares. Yeah, it does. And, and unfortunately, then it's a little bit too late because they've already voted the wrong way mm-hmm. a bunch of times uh, or ignored the issue one way or another. And it's a tough one now because with all the stuff that happened after George Floyd and, and then all and then defund the police and the counter reaction on the right, you know, support the police and I'm I'm more in that camp, but uh, uh, but at this point, I think you have a lot of politicians who would be scared to death of supporting anything where uh, you'd have a lot of conservatives who would be scared of supporting anything where they could get a primary challenge from their right saying this guy was for defunding the police. That's how they'll word it. Oh, he mm-hmm. wanted to get rid of civil asset forfeiture. Oh, this guy wanted to defund the police. And so, so I, I think that. <laughs> well, if you're if you're funding the police with stolen property, you should defund them. In that case, yeah, you should that, defund that part. That portion of the funding should be taken away, right? Yeah, but, so, but the people are only going to hear the thirty second ad. Saying, right. You know that guy wanted to defund the police, and then they'll not vote for him. They're not going to hear the rest. Yeah, yeah, but you know there are. There are some police departments that are getting significant portions of their funding from stolen goods, just taking yeah. people, taking people's money or property. And I think people don't know how bad this is. I mean, it's without due process. They're just taking the stuff. They're not charging the person even with a crime. They're just they're, saying they're saying we're going to take it and you have to prove that it wasn't used in, in the bad way. Right. And and there are a few states that have made civil asset forfeiture by their own law enforcement illegal. And what the police departments are doing is they are partnering with a federal agency that then yeah. deputizes the local officers. They, the local officers do all the work, seize all the stuff, but in the name of the federal government, and then the federal government does something that's called equitable sharing, and they give back a percentage of the stolen money to the state or to the to the state agency, even though it's supposed to be illegal in that state. And I just heard a story about this. I, New Mexico, I forget where, but uh, there were some marijuana businesses operating, and basically the marijuana businesses have to transport cash and armored vehicles because uh, a lot of them still can't get bank accounts. And the the feds 
and the local cops are basically doing bank robberies. They're, they're holding up these armored cars and they're taking all the money and saying, screw you. It's, yeah. it's outright theft. They, they should be, they should be, uh, shot in their attempt to rob the vehicle by the guards who have the authority to shoot people who are stealing their stuff. And if they live, they should be put in prison for theft. Yeah, there are double standards all around on this stuff. And it is extremely frustrating. That's an example. You you brought up adoptive forfeiture is what it's called when the federal government comes in. And that's something that was brought to life after the Obama administration had stopped doing it, the Trump administration brought it back under Jeff Sessions. And here's an example where Joe Biden, who claims he cares about uh, injustices, he could right now, with the stroke of a pen, say, I'm doing away with this adoptive forfeiture nonsense. We're not going to rob people. And this is stuff that often affects low-income people, especially people who just don't have the resources. They can especially be hurt and targeted by this because what are they going to do if their money's taken? Are they going to get a lawyer and you know spend all these resources to get the money back that was stolen from them? And it might be the money that they need today. And yeah. then, they, then they have to go get a loan. They get into a huge – it spirals out of control for them. Yeah. As it's worth as, it for you if they stole – a million dollars, but is it worth it if they stole a thousand dollars? Right? Yeah. St- steal a thousand dollars a thousand times, and probably almost none of those people are going to lawyer up, and you're going to get yeah. to keep all their money. Uh, let me let me slightly modify one thing. I I don't mean I want law enforcement people to get shot, but I'm just making a point that that's theft. And if it were anyone other than law enforcement robbing an armored vehicle, they'd probably get shot. Um, yeah. I don't want anybody shot. No, I, want I, I, theft, get, I want the theft to stop. I get your meaning. Nobody should be shot. But um, what you mean is in self-defense, these armored vehicles are protecting the property. But, yeah, exactly. Um, so what do you think now about – it's related to all this stuff um, when it comes to COVID and the Canada stuff that increasingly people on the left – want to take people off the air or take people off social media who have opinions that are contrary to whatever the corporate media narrative is. And how did the, how did we get to this place? Because you must remember a time as I do when the left were the defenders of freedom of speech, freedom of the press uh, they said, um, we have to protect this even when things we don't like are being said. There was a whole period of time I remember growing up where social conservatives were the ones who were trying to get everything censored and taken off. And uh, the left was saying, no, no, even though uh, it might be abhorrent or whatever, we wanted to stay on there because freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. But now it seems like if you say something like, I don't think someone should be um, masked or I'm not going to get vaccinated or whatever, that that is a reason to take the person off the air because they're spreading misinformation or propaganda. Yeah, so I got a few thoughts on that. First thing that comes to mind, uh, you know, the, the Joe Rogan controversy 
And, and he mentioned that a couple of the things that he kind of got in trouble for early on, and people said he's spreading misinformation, or maybe it wasn't even so much what he said, but he was just talking about things that got people deplatformed, uh, ended up being actually the things that were right, right? And people got thrown off of social, and social media for saying things that were against the conventional wisdom or Dr. Fauci or someone. And they got deplatformed for that. And then it turned out that what they were saying was right. And he gave a couple examples that don't come to my mind right now. But so, so that's one thing. I, I think that, I think that social media was non-censorious for a very long time. But the, the reaction to Donald Trump of left-wing employees within these companies caused them to change their standards. And once they censored something, then they're like, okay, it's on and we'll just censor everything. And I I think Trump broke their brains uh, and, and they've been just censoring everything ever since. And I think it's hurting them a lot. I mean, I, I know the entire stock market is down quite a bit, but, but Twitter is down 50% from its high and, Facebook a, f- uh, a few weeks ago announced an earnings report, and that company lost more in dollar value in one day than any company had in history. It was like $200 billion loss in one single day. And, you know, I have no idea whether Donald Trump's own social media platform is going to do well, but this is an interesting one for libertarians like you and me, right? You think the market will take care of this. Uh, but it's pretty difficult also when the market is so dominated, you know, Facebook, Google, uh, it, those two in, in particular, Twitter's a lot smaller than, than Facebook, but they're so dominant, it's hard, it's hard to compete. I don't know if I answered your question, but I think Trump broke their brains, and I, and I think it's bad for everybody. And I, but let me also just fully acknowledge that there were a lot of people who were intentionally trolling for clicks or followers uh, or whatever other reason they have that might be more malign than just trying to get followers. There were plenty of people out there spreading absolute outright lies about COVID, about, there still are, about vaccines, about all kinds of things. True liars, harmful people. It makes me sick how the anti-vax movement broadly, I'm not talking about COVID vaccine narrowly, the anti-vax movement broadly, which used to be a fringe kook thing, um, mostly on the left. Oh, here's a story you'll enjoy. I I don't remember who this person was who I was uh, listening to at a conference, but I remember it was a woman and she she was a a vaccine a vaccine expert, not not just the science of vaccines, but the the culture of vaccines and, and vaccines in society, right? And she said, we did this exhaustive study trying to figure out what would be the best predictor of there being a relatively low rate of vaccination of children in a neighborhood. And I'm not going to ask you to guess what it was because you won't be able to guess. She said, the best correlation they found to a low rate of children, kids vaccinations, was the presence of a Whole Foods. Hmm. And it was this fringe, anti-capitalist, basically, movement of, of liberals 
who mistrusted or even hated any large companies, including Big Pharma, and thought that everything that came out of Big Pharma was just a manipulation to make profit, and so they didn't get their kids vaccinated. Those are the people who shop at Whole Foods. Now you've got this big anti-vax movement on the right, and I used to think conservatives were smarter than that, but I'm, I was wrong. Yeah, I think uh, going back to the, the free speech issue, I think you're right that Donald Trump broke a lot of people's brains in terms of how they think about things. Like, I was very critical of Donald Trump. I voted to impeach Donald Trump. I stand by the things I said about Donald Trump. I think he was a terrible president in so many respects and in many respects anti-libertarian. As I've explained several times uh, on Twitter and elsewhere, yet I don't think it's a good idea to deplatform people. I don't think it's a good idea to silence people. And when people come back and they say, well, it's not censorship if Twitter does it or if Facebook does it. Yeah, it is censorship. It's private mm-hmm. censorship. Right. It's not government censorship, but it is censorship. Yeah. I, I think that we should stop pretending like censorship only means it's from the government. The, I mean the whole idea of government is an abstraction anyways. So like this idea that only government can censor is wrong. Uh, anyone can censor. Now, you might say it's not unlawful censorship. So Twitter right. is allowed to do it. Facebook's allowed to do it. But that doesn't mean it's actually good for our system. It doesn't mean – or our society. Let's put it that way. That yeah. it's good for society to to try to silence people. They, they have the power to do it. They have the legal right to do it. But it doesn't mean that it is better, that we live in a better world when people are silenced because they have views that are different. Even if they are spreading something that ends up being false or misinformation or even a lie because in this country – we believe it's not the job of the government to determine or some kind of higher power, something, someone high up to determine what is a lie. We want, we want information out there and people can make judgments for themselves. If you think something's a lie, then say so. You say so. So if I think that you go on Twitter and you said something wrong, my response is not take Ross off the – um, off the air or take take Ross off social media, it's here's why I think you're wrong and here's my evidence for it. If I, if I ran a social media platform, I'd say two things. First, you make the rules clear and you abide by them. And if it were my platform, and it's probably easy for me to say today, and I don't know whether my view would change with more experience, although I got plenty of experience on social at this point, I, I think my only rule would be uh, I, will, I will ban you if you call for violence. Yeah. I think that would be my only rule. You say go, go beat somebody up, go kill somebody, go um, get, you know, get the torches and pitchforks and storm the state capitol and tar and feather any legislators. You may, I'll ban you for any of that. But other than that, you know, I, 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 private companies do not need to abide by the First Amendment. But if if I ran a private company of that sort, I that's I would maximize free speech. Yeah, and I think that 
this is one of the inf- unfortunate things is that people who grew up in the United States, because we have a beautiful thing like the Constitution, like the Bill of Rights, that it's too easy to conflate free speech with the First Amendment and think that the only things that are free speech are things that are protected by the First Amendment. When actually, there's lots of stuff that infringes on free speech that the First Amendment is not protecting. You know, free speech is just a concept. It's not synonymous with the First Amendment. Just because the government is stopping you from speaking, that's not the only way to infringe the freedom of speech. It could also be uh, a private infringement of your speech. Now, there may be circumstances where that seems okay. Um, For example, if you come to my house and you start saying all sorts of crazy things, I might kick you out of my house. But if you've got a platform of billions of people, you might say, hey, we probably want this to be pretty open and have very clear, consistent rules. You know, it's not the same thing as coming to someone's house and and um, spouting off in their living room or or even some kind of smaller setting like that. So I think we can all use our heads and understand that freedom of speech means something broader than the First Amendment and that we need to be protective of it. We need to be, protect this idea of a true liberalism, classical liberalism, this idea of um, – just a marketplace of ideas. And it's also protection of diversity, right? I, yeah. I thought the left cared about diversity. Here's an example of diversity, letting people speak their mind and give their opinions when, the, when those opinions are different from yours. Right. Well, you, you don't need me to tell you that the left only cares about diversity of appearance, right? They, they oppose diversity of thought. But I, I will, I'll tell you, I think one of the things that frustrates a huge percentage of Americans, and you know, as a talk show host, most of my listeners are right of center on talk radio. That's just how it is. Uh, Is is the imbalance involved, right? So yeah, they'd be pissed off at at censorship and pissed off at deplatforming Trump, but they let so much terrible stuff go, including all kinds of things that are much more blatant lies and much more blatant calls for some harmful activity from the left, and, and they kick people off from the right from what appear to be much lesser offenses. And I think that that really pisses people off. And, you know, you de-platform Donald Trump and you leave the head of the Taliban. And I think that, I think, I think a lot of people are really upset yeah, about Yeah, or that. Chinese government officials. Yeah. Who are, yeah. they spout all sorts of nonsense on yeah. Twitter. And Twitter doesn't do a thing. Yeah. At least not that I've seen. Maybe they've maybe they have gone after some of them, but I see it all the time where Chinese government officials I mean I've I've seen them come in to threads where people are criticizing the United States over something. You know, we're criticizing our own government over something, as we have the right to do. And Chinese a Chinese official will come in and say like or Chinese um affiliated media will come in and they'll say, See, the US is so terrible, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, yeah, we can actually criticize our government. So who are you to come in here and, and tell us about the U.S.? You All know, right, maybe so take if a look you, at your own government. If you ran that platform, would you ban that Chinese official or not? I don't think so, no. Yeah, as long as I mean, it depends, it depends it is, on right? what the person is saying, 
right? And I don't think that the, yeah, the person is disclosing who they are. I don't think that's a that's an issue. Are I, you and I are you and I assuming too high a level of intelligence and wisdom and discernment among the majority of American consumers of social media? I don't think so. I I mean we have to, at the end of the day, allow people to think for themselves. We, the idea that the government is going to tell you or Twitter is going to decide how everyone has to think about everything, I think is not healthy for society. I, I have never been a fan of all the um, labels that they put on things, too. They're, they're constantly labeling things now on Twitter, and, and I assume they do the same thing on parts of Facebook. Because the labeling, I understand why they're doing it but they have no consistency like how come someone can say something about let's say covid that they think is misinformation and they'll label it but then someone will come on and say something that is blatantly untrue about the way our system of government works and there's no labeling of this is misinformation and here's some if you'd like to learn more about our government here's the constitution like there's there's none of that going on. So it's very selective. And I think that selectivity really bothers me. Uh, and they have the right to do it. Nobody's saying they don't have the right to do it. I'm just saying it's a bad practice. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think sometimes people get on the case of libertarians. They say, well, it's a market and they're a business. Aren't they allowed to do what they want? And Justin, shouldn't you support their right to do what they want? I do support their right to do what they want. I can still think it's a bad idea to do it a certain way. I'm allowed to have opinions just because I'm a libertarian doesn't mean I don't have opinions of yeah. things that companies do or what happens in the marketplace. Yeah, as president of the Bad Analogy Club, I'll give you one. I'm, I'm for the legalization of drugs for adults, and I've never tried an illegal drug. I've never tried marijuana. I've never taken a puff of a cigarette. But, but same way, same way. I'm for let uh, now adults only, right? Like someone sells drugs to kids, I think the penalty should be super harsh. But for adults, it's you know uh, ingest what you want. Don't drive under the influence because then you're risking other people. But other than that, you know, knock yourself out, maybe literally. Yeah. Before we go, I um, when I was in Denver, I stopped by Casa Bonita. What so? What is going on there? They are they were doing um, just tours through it before. Is that what's still going on? Do you know much about it? I know a little about it. This is going to be kind of embarrassing, but I've never been there. Really? Ca- so I've been to Casa Bonita, but I know. you haven't. Right. So Casa Bonita, for those who don't know, is a Mexican restaurant, more or less, and it's an institution in Colorado. It's enormous. It is famous for really good sopapilla desserts and really bad everything else <laughs> with the food. And they've got the, it's it's big. They've got a gorilla who runs around. They got these waterfalls and like people dive into the waterfalls and it's a whole show. Anyway, the last I heard is that the founders of South Park have bought it, and they the the creators of of the South Park TV show. Uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone are have bought it, and they are they've hired a really good local chef to upgrade the menu and the food, and they're going to reopen it and try to keep that experience, but with better food. 
Yeah, maybe when I come back, if they open it up, we should go to Casa Bonita. I I was fascinated by by <laughs> just the good. tour. I couldn't believe the tour. I mean, the place is really remarkable. It reminded me a lot of going to Disney, just like but all Mexican themed, mm-hmm. and um, it was really amazing. Well, do you know either of those guys? If anyone would know them, because at nope. least one of them is very libertarian. Yeah, I don't know them, and I, I do watch South Park and. I feel like they hit on all my issues and topics almost almost every episode. Yeah. I mean, but I don't know them. I, I think they are uh, pretty obviously libertarian-leaning, at least, in their political views. Oh, yeah. And one of them said – it was a great quote, and I forget which one it was – said, um, said uh, I hate Republicans, but I really effing hate Democrats. And that's kind of like, I think, how you and I feel. <laughs> I, I don't, first, I would say I don't hate anyone, but uh-huh. I, I don't like either of the parties. And, and, you know, in some ways, I equally dislike the two parties. And that's because the Republicans, to me, were a party that I grew up thinking held a certain set of views. And I joined the party. And I find it more disappointing that they didn't live up to those views than I find the Democrats. Like the Democrats I always knew uh, were not really living up to the principles I believed in the and the things that I think made this country really great and made it a great place for immigrant families like my family. Mm-hmm. Again, but they never like to claimed to, right? Right. But they never claimed to. to. They never claimed <laughs> to care about those things from right. the time – I, I will say that a long time ago, they had some more truly what I would call classical liberal views on certain things. And we talked about free speech being one example mm-hmm. where I could say like, yeah, I agree with them on that. Or some of the um, civil liberties or criminal justice issues where I said uh, I could have said at one point, I agree with them on that. But increasingly, as they've become more. I don't know what to describe it because it's like some mishmash of now progressivism and socialism and sort of Biden establishmentism. Um, it's it's in some ways become a very I, – I don't know if the, this is the right way to use the word conservative. But in some ways it's a it's become a very conservative party in the sense that – they're not really about people's freedom or human liberty anymore. It's about someone at the top dictating things to people. And and I don't know um, what the exact you know way to frame that is. I, I think we could all come up with a lot of words for that. But um, I would say they've moved so far from what they ever were um, 40 or 50 years ago. And it's disappointing. So I like – but again, not disappointing like Republicans where yeah. growing up, I thought they were for free markets and individual liberty and limited government. And it turns out they're not really for those things. My my friend Dan Mitchell, who is an economist who you might know, um, calls them the stupid party and the evil party. And uh, Republicans are stupid party, Democrats are the evil party. But the the more Republicans drift into right wing populism, the more they, in my mind, they just go to a different kind of evil. And the Democrats are still probably more evil, but 
Uh, I'd rather have a stupid party than an evil party. And the, the Republicans are drifting even further away from me. Yeah. I don't know well, that it's permanent, though. Like I said, I, I think there's a chance that too many Republicans try to run as many Trumps and they lose in purple states and swing districts and all this. And, and party members realize that's just not, it's not a winning formula. I don't, again, I don't know whether it's naively optimistic. Anything is possible, but I do think that it's time for another party to rise up and challenge these other two parties, which is why I moved to the Libertarian Party. And I, at one point, thought maybe you could do it as an independent. I do think people want to feel like they're a part of something. There's still a desire to be in some kind of unit, like a party. But... But... At the end of the day, nobody should ever place their party before their principles and before uh, liberty and the, the rights of the people. And what happens too often these days is people are treating parties like they're a religion or some kind of sports team. They root for the party no matter what. And I think that's very dangerous and something George Washington warned us about in the early days. Well, I, I look forward to getting a Tustin Dimash for president sticker to put on my car. <laughs> uh, and um, should we take another call before we go? I think we, I think that will go on for too long. So let us. Call oh, you must know him. that person. But you must know that caller. He's called in three times and I, or this is a third time. And mm-hmm. We'll uh, <laughs> I, I, we'll let him we'll we'll save him for maybe another episode. All right. But I want right. to say um, thank you, Ross, and I I appreciate it. I'm gonna stop by in Denver again, and maybe we'll get out to Casa Bonita if it's if it's open. That would be great. And in the meantime, your homework is to try to get in touch with those guys because I guarantee they heard of you. I I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. If you have any contacts over there, you let me know. I don't. I don't, but I bet you they'd be like just as pleased to meet you as you would be to, to meet them. I, um, I would really enjoy it. Um, uh, but, but if you come know. out, maybe we get maybe we get uh, Jared Polis to go with us. Well, then we might get their attention. Yeah, right. Yeah, I come out, you and me, Jared Polis. Well, that, that is actually a good idea. Yeah, maybe, maybe we'd do it. You tell me. Uh, I don't know when their grand opening. I'm, I assume they're going to reopen it sometime for food. I, I guess. Whenever they do that, maybe I should come out for the ceremony. Oh we'll, we'll bring Jared Polis and, uh, and do that. That would be hilarious. Yeah, I would really enjoy that. <laughs> All right, well, Ross. Thanks for inviting me. No, thank you. Um, go enjoy your, your evening and, and good luck with what you're doing. And uh, tell people again where they can listen to you. I'm on KOA Radio in Denver. Uh, Over the airwaves, it's 8.50 a.m. and 94.1 FM. But you can listen anywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Just look for KOA. Or on your smart speaker. You just tell your smart speaker to listen to KOA on iHeartRadio. I'm on 9 a.m. to noon, mountain time, uh, every weekday. Uh, Here's a fun one, Justin. Did you hear the story of... Uh, she's been in the news a lot. Her name is Jennifer Say, S-E-Y, and she's the former Levi Strauss executive. 
who left the firm because they wanted her to stop saying that schools should be open. Do you know, have you heard of her? I, I haven't heard of that, actually. Okay, do you follow And Barry I try to stay on top of the news, but... Do you follow Barry Weiss's Substack at all? Yeah. He's one of the great... That's uh, an amazing thing. So she... So Barry Weiss published this thing by Jennifer Say a week ago, and it, it, it blew up, and she was on Tucker Carlson, and she was here and there, and everywhere. And, uh, yeah, so she worked at this... At, at Levi Strauss, which you would think is this American Western rugged institution, but they're based in San Francisco, Levi is... And, and she was saying, this is terrible for our kids to have schools closed like this, which doesn't have anything to do with Levi's. And she was doing it on her own time. It wasn't business related. And, and, her, and she was in line to be CEO of the company, they told her, but not if you keep saying schools should be open. So um, she left. She moved to Denver. And she's going to be in studio with me next Monday uh, for a full hour. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, again, I enjoyed having you on here. This is just a little outfit right here, you know, where I'm just starting and trying to build up some experience and maybe someday I'll get into the big leagues like you. But anyone I, can do it. It's you. I don't know. We'll see. So thanks, Ross. Take thanks. care. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone who's listening today. Take care.